The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at John's gospel, I just began to work in this gospel and intend to preach in it the remainder of this month and into 2014, Lord willing. I just tried to bring you some truths from the first five verses last time, and I'm going to press on, but I'll read those five verses again, even though most of what we're looking at is from verse 5 through 11 today. Listen to God's word through John, the disciple of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. This is the word of God. Let us hear it and be edified by it today. I recently read, I believe it's the official authorized biography of America's pioneer aviator of the 20th century, Charles Lindbergh. And I was reminded again how 85 years ago the name Lindbergh was a name of one of the greatest heroes the world at that time had ever known. He was acclaimed a hero, an admired man in every corner of the globe. South Africans and Alaskans and Chinese and Indonesians knew the name Lindbergh. Amazingly, perhaps some of our young people don't know his name at all today. In 1927, at the age of merely 25, Lindbergh made his 33-hour solo airplane flight across the Atlantic from an airport in the vicinity of New York City, landing at Paris. His custom plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, became a model of inspiration and courage to people. Nobody thought he would make it. The world watched him give his mother a hug. There were pictures taken of it, and captions said, is this a mother's goodbye? Because certainly many thought Lindbergh would end up, as others had, in the same attempt in the middle of the ocean somewhere lost. When his small plane was sighted over Ireland, radio bulletins were sped into France. And so amazing was the response, Lindbergh himself 
could not believe it when he landed his plane at the Paris airport. He was astonished to see what was estimated to be a human tidal wave of 150,000 people charging the runway, charging towards his plane. He thought he was going to have a terrible collision. From that time on, this man lost his privacy, his individuality, and some would say he lost more than he ever could have estimated. He probably wouldn't have made the flight if he had realized what he would lose. Ticker tape parades, huge crowds, speeches demanded from him everywhere he went, women proposing marriage at every turn. Lindbergh was offered promotional contracts estimated to be more than $5 million. That's 1927. Try to translate that into today's money. He turned most of them down. Being the world's most famous flyer soon became unbearable for this man who, by personal nature, was a recluse, very shy, very awkward. He had never at age 25 been on a date with a woman at that age. A few years later, tragically, Lindbergh's firstborn son was kidnapped and murdered. He grew to despise reporters and newspapers. He avoided them in every possible way. He saw them as agents of destruction. He built walls around himself and his wife and his later other children, refusing to be manipulated by public opinion. Sadly, there were things that led to the erosion and the crumbling of Lindbergh's fame. A couple of years before Pearl Harbor happened, Lindbergh made a very unwise decision. He accepted the invitation of Hermann Goering to inspect the new airplanes of the powerful German Luftwaffe. He went to Germany, in fact, three times to look over these planes, to give his opinion, to speak about them. He tried to be neutral politically, but no one would allow him that. And the derision of his countrymen arose. Cries of traitor, Nazi sympathizer were raised. And Lindbergh soon knew what it was to plummet from the heights of world popularity into the very depths of almost infamy and scorn. Well, we know someone else to whom this happened. And it happened on a far more spectacular scale to Jesus of Nazareth. He came to this world as the Christ of God the divine and preexistent Son, as we have heard declared in John and looked at last time. He was, from the very first, exalted to a place where no one else had ever imagined anyone could dwell. And you could say, in a manner of speaking, that as a man on this earth, the only place Jesus had to go was down. How quickly public sentiment turned on him. You know how he was accused and mocked and lied about and rejected and cruelly and unjustly executed. And one of the things that's so amazing to see here in this prologue, this introduction we call it, of John 1, is what is first given in those initial few verses, glory, splendor, the heights of heaven that belong to him. And then immediately we begin to see in verse 10, the downward, downward, downward fall 
into rejection by human beings. It almost takes your breath away to see this contrast. If you're a person who thinks your own life has highs and lows in it, I would urge you to consider the man of earth who had the greatest highs and the greatest lows. And hear and think today about the determined rejection of Christ by the world into which he came. The very persons whom God's Spirit had received life breathed into them were those who took the shining light of the truth of God and tried very hard to snuff it out. Just two main points today. First of all, we examine once more John 5 as a key verse and spilling on into 9, which states categorically that Jesus Christ is God's true light in our dark world. Certainly light is an important biblical emblem at Christmas. I believe that, and you can see it in my living room. At our house this year, I think we have the most lights on our Christmas tree that we've ever strung on one before. I didn't count them individually, but I think by knowing the strands and how many are on the strands, there's between six and 700 lights on our seven-foot Christmas tree. I believe there's probably a CIA spy satellite saying, what is that glow in Leola? Could it be a new nuclear reactor or something? It's only the Rogers. My, my wife says, you overdid it. I said, no, the brighter the better. Light is a powerful symbol for Christmas time. Have you ever thought about what God was telling us by comparing Christ to a great light? He's certainly wanting us to go back once again, just as the idea that that all things were made by Christ recalled Genesis 1 and the creation. Here again, when we're told he's the light shining in the darkness, we go back and we recall that statement. In the creation, in Genesis 1-3, when God said, let there be light. And you try to think what that was, because before that there was unformed chaos and, and darkness, no human being present, of course, but had you been there, your hand could have been here, and you wouldn't have seen it, nor would you even have known what a hand was, because there was no light to show anything. And God said, let this chaos, this darkness, this this depth, this void be divided and changed and let there be the beginning of a creation. And into it he had to bring light. Light doesn't exist for its own sake. It exists to illumine things, to show the colors and the forms and the texture. And throughout the Bible, God is said to Literally, turn on the lights for men to enlighten us in our way, our walk in this world, to give us vision and rational knowledge and guidance and insight and hope and meaning and perspective. All these things are included in God making the world light. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. In 1 John, same author, but his epistle, 1 John 1.5, we read, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I was thinking about a landscape that I drive by 
usually more than once a day, a hilltop view from a half mile or so from my house. It looks down on a valley kind of scene. Some of you know where I'm talking about. And there are visible two farms that border along the Conestoga River. And I think that this view represents, if I was a painter, I would set up my easel there. Or a photographer, I would time my shot and try to get some shots there because I think it's one of the most beautiful landscapes anywhere in our fair county and I get to look at it daily. But I've been able to realize that it makes a big difference what kind of light is being shed on this landscape. The other day I was passing, it was fairly soon after daybreak, and the white barns were pink and gold. It was just glorious. I thought, what if you just knew when to be there with the right camera to get that shot. You would have had a gorgeous photograph. And yet I drove past the scene again the other night when it was storming. It wasn't quite dark yet, but everything was gray and overcast, and you wouldn't have given that view a second thought. It wasn't very interesting. certainly wouldn't have been called beautiful. It all depended on the light. You notice that John 1.9 tells us that Christ is the true light which enlightens everyone coming into the world. That is, the light is coming into the world, enlightening everyone. Now, on one hand, there are those who have the fullness of God's light. We know from other scripture passages, by salvation, by being new creatures in Jesus Christ, we have a fullness. There's a place where it's said we have the mind of Christ. We know many things, we see many things that are spiritually discerned because Christ is our Lord and God is remaking us and giving his own understanding in new ways to those who belong to him in Christ. And so you could say that that only the believer has the fullness of God's light, but here's a statement in John 1, 9 that everyone has some degree of God's light in this world, even those that are not regenerate, Romans 2.15 says that all rational people bear witness to the fact that the law of God is working on their conscience, whether they have known it as his law or not. And so if there is any spiritual awakening ever happening in a soul that has been hardened a long time to the things of God, that comes from the light of Christ. If there's any longing for knowing God better or appreciating his word or even natural things like appreciating beauty that I talked about in a landscape or any compassion in the heart of a person towards the needy of this world. We believe that those things are God's light put in people whether they may know him in a saving way or not. You go back to days of World War II and I've heard many times read about London in the blackouts that they had They were rigorously enforced because, of course, they were being bombed all the time. And they didn't want a crack of light emerging from under a window shade or any lights on in the street or anything of that kind. And it is said that in those times in London, it was so dark at night, on a moonless night, that if someone lighted a match, that that could even be seen a couple hundred yards away. Because that little spark of a flame was the only light in a dark envelope of night. That's how it was when Christ first entered this creation. He was a tiny light in an obscure place. And isn't it significant that a remarkable star 
accompanied him. But that was only seen and understood by a few people. It wasn't a gigantic star like some of your Christmas card pictures show. It was a star that stood out in some manner, and those who understood astronomy realized it was unusual in its movement and its placement. But even that was only a light recognized by some at first. And it took time. It took years before people realized that in Christ there were gleams of something sent from heaven that was greater than the world had ever known before. That Jesus came speaking and they began to see that light and said, nobody ever spoke like this man. He did miracles and they said, who does things like this except God? And the light began to grow and grow. You could compare perhaps our own personal vision of the world at large to that same hillside farm scene I was talking about a minute ago. You might say the unbeliever is the man who who stands on that hill and looks down, and it's midnight, and he hardly sees anything. Maybe he discerns some kind of outline of a building down there or something, but there's not much to tell him what's there. And then there's that person who perhaps is beginning to take hold of Christian truth or who has been raised in a country where many of the general truths of the Scripture and the Gospel have been made known, and whether he has grasped them himself or not, he still has some idea of them. And so he's more like the person at twilight who does indeed see what's there, but the full beauty of it, the full scene isn't broken upon him. But then there's the justified, regenerated believer in Christ who's becoming a new creature by the Spirit of God working in him, the same Spirit that was in Christ himself. He looks and he sees a beautiful scene. And he says, the world is a different place. And Christ, the revealer of God, is the reason because my eyes have been made new. Spiritually, we think salvation in Christ does open human eyes for people to see God as he is. They see with understanding what the Scripture is saying. They see other people differently. They realize the weakness of other people. They realize themselves of their sin and who they are, and they're humbled. They see everything differently. And the whole world is a new place. One of our staff members has a framed quote in his office. It struck me this week as being very apropos to what I'm talking about. I'm paraphrasing, but the quote says something like, I believe in Christ, like I believe in the Son, not because I see him, but because by him I see everything else. That's what the Christian knows to be true. There's a new sight, a new vision of the whole world. Christ is God's true light in our dark world. But I move on to the second point today. And it's particularly in John 1, 10, and 11, where secondly, I say this declaration, that millions are blinded in unbelief by God's true light. You know what it is to be driving just at the wrong time of day when the sun is low in the horizon and it's a bright day and maybe you don't have your sunglasses. I don't wear sunglasses, so there are times when it's just, ah, you know, I cannot see. There's a big blind spot there because the light is right in my face. Well, we read here, Christ was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world did not know him. Blinded by unbelief. The divine, preexistent, 
word of God stepped forth on the stage of this planet. He made this planet. And what did he meet with? The native unbelief of human beings who would not recognize him for who he was. This is the natural condition of people coming into this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 has an analysis of what we would call this spiritual blindness. It says, the God, small g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You can see the same thing again. We're going to come upon it in a couple of chapters. Lord willing, when we study John, we'll get to chapter 3, verse 19, where we are told people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Their works are works of darkness, and so they're more familiar there. They're more at home there. And this explains so much to us of what's going on in our news headlines every day. People actually love darkness. They don't run to the light. This darkness of unbelief is not a problem that any ophthalmologist can cure for you with a new prescription for stronger glasses or contact lenses, and it certainly is not a failure on God's behalf to somehow make his son better known to you. God has made his son known. We have fulfilled prophecy. We have the miracles of Christ. We have his amazing words, and we look at all those things, and despite it, many refuse to see. It's as though they're, they're gazing into a, a burning sun or something, and they say, I, I can't see anything. I just don't know what's there. And in their doubt, they look past Christ. They look around him. They might even look right through him. But they don't see him. Well, as tragic as that is, there's something more pathetic spoken of in this passage in John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This, of course, is the colossal tragedy of the people of Israel not receiving their own Messiah. It's one of the solemn, cautionary lessons of the whole Bible. People who had every expectation, who were told by prophets and teachers for many ages about Christ, Moses, who said, there's going to come one who will be a leader like me, David, who wrote his Psalms. We read Psalm 2 today about God's king being installed on his holy hill. That was Jesus and all kinds of prophecies that looked for him. How many people of the nation of Israel were looking for him? It's pathetic. Simeon and Anna stand out so much in the Christmas narrative because here they were, elderly people who had spent their lives looking and expecting, and somehow God's Spirit revealed, here he is! Imagine their excitement. But nobody around them was excited. And as a matter of fact, the half-breed Jewish King, he was part Jewish, part Idumean. Herod the Great actually sought to slaughter Christ and had no problem slaughtering dozens of other infants in Bethlehem along with him. And the high council of the official temple in Jerusalem called him demon-possessed and devised schemes about him. They consulted their scholars. Where will he be born? Bethlehem. Oh, where was he born? Oh, Bethlehem. Hmm. Did anybody pause to think over that? No. The whole world in general would not receive. You see, it's one thing not to know him. Do you see the the gradations of unbelief? In verse 10, 
the world at large would not know him, but his own people would not receive him. That's a word for embrace. They were expected to embrace him, and they would not. Now, folks, there's no excuse whatsoever for us reading this and somehow thinking as non-Israelites that we are superior to any Israelite who rejected Christ. Let there be no cause for anti-Semitism as we think about these things at all, because had we been of the nation of Israel, we would have done exactly what they did. And if Christ's own home folks had been Englishmen or Spaniards or Greeks or Native Americans or Czechoslovakians or whatever group you're from, your group would have done what they did. John 1 intends to tell us at the front door of this gospel there is a stark contrast between the eternal glory of Jesus Christ as the preexistent Son of the highest God, fully divine, and the utter depravity of man who would not know him. Not could not, would not. In Isaiah 65, there's a passage where the Lord says, I spread out my hands. Appeal, I spread my hands out all day long to a rebellious people who follow their own devices and provoke me to my face. Of course he was talking to Israel first of all there, but it applies to every one of us. Now this is not a particularly cheerful subject today, and yet it prepares us to think better about Christ and conclude that this darkness of our world order is not just the absence of light, It is actually a malevolent force actively scheming, diabolically attempting to snuff out and eclipse the light of God in Christ. And yet, going forward from this opening paragraph of John, as darkness will try to do its worst to Christ throughout this gospel, you're going to find it cannot win. Despite many encroachments, The satanic dark cannot eclipse the light of Jesus Christ. Best evidence of all is at the moment when you would think that it had won, that it had accomplished its goal at the cross of Calvary, when the darkness could have stood up and triumphed and said, There, I did away with him. That we look back upon as the moment of great victory for the light because Christ would not remain dead. And he had, of course, offered himself, accomplishing in his death the liberation of his people from their sin. So today, folks, as we live in the year 2013 and see the historic morality of Western countries progressively coming unraveled, as we see godless governments with its leaders openly attacking biblical principles, we can say this morning Christ's light shines in the darkness and the darkness not only has not overcome it, it never will. It cannot. Now I'm deliberately stopping short. Some of you may object today. You say, wait a minute, you didn't read verse 12. You're stopping in 11, the diagnosis of the problem. I'm doing it deliberately. I want you to see this problem in which humanity would be stuck in the determined grip of unbelief without resolution so that next time, God willing, you'll look with me at the wonderful thing that is said as we go on in verse 12 and find, but to all who did receive him, 
who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next time. God did not send his son in vain. God did not penetrate the dark in vain. And I leave you with these two biblical testimonials this morning. One is 2 Corinthians 4, 6, one of the marvelous verses from Paul's pen. And God's who said, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if you hear that, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and you say, yes, I know that to be true, then I can leave you this verse as well. 1 Peter 2, 9. Telling believers that we exist for this purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thanks be to God. Our Father, I pray anyone here who's laboring in a particular way, in personal darkness, who's feeling that the world and its system and its oppression and its difficulties and its obstacles are overwhelming, may see your light, may look to your Son and see and recognize understanding and grace and wisdom and your intervention and working on their behalf even to save us. Thank you, Lord, for the light that has come that cannot pass away. Amen.